Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's step away a little bit from Fed speak and rates. and Let's talk about you know, some of the bigger, bigger trends, long-term trends affecting uh, investing longer term. I'm talking about climate change, and uh, our good friends at PGM have some, some good research out on that. Timer Hyatt, he's a chief operating officer for PGM. PGM is a global investment management business of Prudential Financial, $1.5 trillion, with a T under management, uh, based in a resurging Newark, New Jersey. Tamer, thank you so much for joining us here. Talk to us about, I know you guys are out with a recent report, weathering climate change, opportunities and risks in an altered investment landscape. Climate change is such a huge issue on a global scale. There have political ramifications. How are you guys thinking about uh, how that affects your investment uh, paradigm? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, I really think it's, uh, it's long term, but with what we saw in Texas not very long ago and uh, all the issues there, the sort of Minsky moment for climate change is happening around us where it's beginning to be priced in. And that's maybe our, our biggest thesis that uh, for all investors, whether they have an ESG lens, but even if they don't, the data now exists to distinguish between winners and losers, those who will be on the right side of climate change and are making the evolution, and those who will be left behind as dinosaurs and stranded assets. And that increasingly every asset and every security will start having climate change externalities, which have been there for you know one group of people, but not reflected in market prices, increasingly reflected in market prices for about five different very important reasons. So... My question is, we're all against climate change, obviously. Where can I make the most money on this? I mean, where are the opportunities that haven't already been uh, that are, haven't already been crowded into? So I would say the two biggest areas are looking for places where climate change will actually impact a company's performance, but the markets haven't internalized it because they haven't utilized the data or seen the writing on the wall. And the two areas I'd give as examples is first, hidden risk. In areas like semiconductors and pharmaceuticals, they seem like they're in pristine areas, right? A Swiss pharmaceutical company, a Taiwanese semiconductor company. But if you track the supply chain back, you can separate between companies who have risk to medical manufacturing in India or semiconductor risk in Arizona, where the water stress will really affect the manufacturing processes. And if you look back, you can start seeing which companies are much more immune to climate risk and therefore will perform better versus which that are not and will perform worse. Uh, and then the second area I would say is on the, on the greener end of the brown fossil fuel industry. You know, not, a lot of people have said, you know, that divestment is a responsible investing strategy. I think there are some investors who are saying, I can actually now have the data to distinguish between companies like BP and Shell, who may be doing much more in evolving, ensuring they don't become stranded assets, versus energy companies that haven't made that transition that might die out as dinosaurs. The data now allows us to distinguish what we call the olive industries at the greener end of brown, and that is certainly another opportunity uh, across the fossil fuel sector, which will be, by the way, with us till at least 2050. We think about 40% of energy consumption will come from fossil fuels even then, despite meeting the Paris Agreement. 
All right, time more. You know, here at Bloomberg, we're all about data. If you can't measure it, you can't management uh, manage it. Is what uh, one of our, our our folks here at Bloomberg is fond of saying. Talk to us about the data that you think investors and maybe even companies should be disclosing and focusing on. What's the data that you guys really look at? So, so there are about a range of uh, data providers, of which Bloomberg is one. Uh, but, you know, we use about five or six different providers. Uh, obviously, the most common one is carbon emissions. But increasingly, and we have a really big real estate business, as, as, as you all know, uh, increasingly it's satellite data, flood maps that are more frequently updated than kind of, you know, official government maps, it's storm stress. Uh, so on the real estate side, I would say real assets and general infrastructure, there's a lot of good data that allows us to make an environmental assessment. And often that aligns to actually creating more value for our customers by understanding how we build resilience to that. On the public market side, stocks and bonds, there's a long journey still to do. The basic carbon emission data is there for large caps. But if you go into high yields, if you go into emerging markets, there are big data gaps there. The good news is they're filling in quickly. So we'd encourage all investors to just keep tracking this, not on an annual basis, but every two, three months, the data is enriching and demanding more transparency and more accurate disclosures from the public sector companies will allow people to build in what is important, not just for ESG investors, but for every investor, which is look at climate as a risk and an opportunity as just part of your core integrated investment process. And that's what we do across PGM. All right, Timer, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure having you on the program. Timer Hyatt, uh, Chief Operating Officer at PGM, talking to us about a really, uh, I mean, now it's almost a generally accepted um, yeah. investment. Uh, 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 um, it's part of that whole ESG uh, movement that is becoming so, so prevalent uh, among uh, institutional investors. And factor is the word I was looking yes. for. Yeah, there you go. It's really one of, one of the factors. And I remember, I think it's just in the last couple of years become one because two or three years ago, there were still question marks about the validity of investing um, through the prism of ESG. And now all of the big houses, I mean, look, PGM has $1.8 trillion. Um, So they got a lot of weight behind it. And they're joined by a lot of other big players out there. Well, yesterday we heard from Fed Chairman Jay Powell, and I think the message was generally uh, status quo, lower for longer as it relates to rates. Uh, Yes, monitoring inflation, but not overly concerned. Yet rates today, looking at the 10-year, it is trading at just uh, almost 1.73%. We see a steepening in the yield curve as well. Let's get an update from a good friend of ours, Lindsay Piegza. She's a chief economist for Stiefel, joining us on the phone from Chicago. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us here. What was your takeaway from the comments from uh, Fed Chair Powell yesterday? Well, as you mentioned, the the policy announcement was very much in line with expectation. Rates unchanged, asset purchases on a monthly basis unchanged. But when we look at what was released along with that policy announcement, the SEP, or the Summary of Economic Projections, it does appear as if the committee is increasingly optimistic. They lowered their outlook for unemployment. They increased their outlook for growth and inflation. And yet when the chairman was pressed on this improved outlook, he continued to downplay the improvement and focus instead on some of the lingering risks and the lingering pain in some of the hardest hit sectors of the economy. So really highlighting some of the further need for accommodation when the forecast does seem to be painting a much brighter picture 
which the market anticipated the Fed would have started to indicate uh, maybe taking the foot off the gas. So it was a little bit of talking out of both sides of the mouth from uh, from the Fed chairman yesterday. First of all, Lindsay, thank you very much for clearing that up for me. Uh, Cameron Cries <laughs> talks about the Fed's SEP forecast, and I was reading that like, what on earth is a SEP forecast? But um, that's why we have the experts like you on the program. How high do you think... Um, Bizarro Volcker is willing to go- let inflation go before he moves away from ZERP. I mean, uh, if we see 4% inflation, does Powell still say, hang on, it's transitory, it'll go away, or does he do something with rates? Well, it really depends. In the near term, the committee seems pretty convinced that any sort of bump up in the coming months through the summer is really a reflection of this reflation trade. So as the low lows of 2020 fall out of the annual calculation. So they're looking at this as a temporary bump up, not an indication of longer term inflation. But even if we did see sustained upward momentum in prices, the Fed's new framework allows the, the Fed to allow inflation to run hot without forcing their hand. So essentially, they're now looking at inflation through an average flexible target, meaning that we could actually see inflation run near 3% for the next several years, but still not exceed the Fed's longer-term average of 2%. So there's a lot of wiggle room that the Mm. Fed has now when it comes to their inflation mandate. Hey, Lindsay, you know that we got another piece of economic data this morning on the, the jobless claims, and they came in Higher than expected. They came in uh, stubbornly high at 770,000. It just doesn't seem um, to see, you know, much improvement there. How concerned are you about the labor market? You know, I've heard a lot of positive uh, sentiments from folks saying this thing's going to bounce back really quickly when when we reopen. what, What are your thoughts? Well, I don't think we can expect anything to bounce back quickly when we're talking about one of the worst recessionary scenarios for the U.S. economy in history. But we certainly have taken big steps in the right direction. We have put roughly half of the 22 million Americans that lost their job at the onset of the crisis back to a position of gainful employment. That being said, we're still talking about roughly 10 million Americans out of work. So there still is a a big gap between where we are and where we were prior to the pandemic. And I do think that's one of the points that Chair Powell was trying to really acknowledge yesterday when he talked about the 6% civilian unemployment rate, but the real rate that he feels in the labor market is closer to 10%. So there still is a lot of lingering pain in the labor force, giving the committee no incentive to act with any sense of immediacy to remove accommodation. It's interesting. What do you expect, um, say, at year end in terms of the reopened economy and continued claim, continuing claims? Well, I would expect for a further improvement in the labor market as the economy is further able to reopen. And we see this as businesses are are able to open their doors, welcome back employees, welcome back consumers. We are starting to see the cycle over of organic. We see it in some states, right, Lindsay? I mean, Florida Mm -hmm. is is open for business. Yeah, absolutely. And you see a big dichotomy between the growth rate in Florida versus the growth rate in California. And yet, arguably, the case rates uh, were not that different. Uh, And so there is a very different approach. 
and uh, certainly those that are allowing businesses to return. Now, that being said, there are some federal impediments that businesses are facing. With the extension of these very generous unemployment benefits, some small businesses are saying they're having difficulty now reconnecting with employees, even as they're trying to reopen. So again, nothing is easy. Nothing is a flip-the-switch scenario. The U.S. economy is still struggling to get back to pre-pandemic levels. No, Lizzie, Lizzie, thanks. Yeah, just just real real quickly, I just wanted to get 20 seconds, Lindsay, uh, the Stiefel GDP outlook. Well, we are looking for a very robust uh, 2021 when you're talking about trillions of dollars coming down the pipeline, as well as the opportunity for uh, trillions more, as the Biden administration has expressed, uh, somewhere between two to four trillion, a likelihood for additional infrastructure, health and and social programs. So we're looking for an annualized rate somewhere around five to six percent. Very cool. Wealth of information from you, Lindsay. Appreciate it as always. Lindsay Piegsa, their chief economist at Stiefel. Uh, uh, Paul, I was just going to point out, there's a really cool chart that Mike McKee put together showing initial jobless claims holding continually above the levels, the high levels that we hit in the great financial crisis. And even back in 1982, and that 770 you quoted is still above that level. So still a lot of pain in the labor market. This is Bloomberg. Mixed, mixed markets here uh, today, a day after Fed Chairman Powell says, stay the course, lower rates for longer. We have inflation uh, in check. Let's get a sense of uh, maybe some a longer term perspective on these markets. And we love to do that with our good friend Barry Ridholtz. He's a this could be opinion. depressing. Yeah, well, no, it's always upbeat with Barry. He's he's always a half half, uh, full kind of guy. Bloomberg Opinion Columns, host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. He's also the founder and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. So, Barry, let's step back here, take a longer view. Fed Chairman Powell says, basically, we got this. Did that come across to you yesterday? More or less. I mean, I I think the big error that everybody has come to accept following the great financial crisis is that we let all the heavy lifting get done by the Federal Reserve without enough fiscal stimulus. It was it was too much monetary policy, not enough fiscal. Now uh, there's some pushback from some quarters that hey, it's too much fiscal, Uh, and Powell sort of said, uh, you know, explicitly said. This is the right sort of task for an economy that is still limping along in many areas and still hasn't fully recovered from the financial crisis. This is about unemployment and underemployment, which is really important. You know what uh, depresses me? I'm looking at um, looking through your blog, Barry, and I always feel like I was born too late. You know, (laughs) I wish I was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the 80s. Like, I want to just front run the the crowd and make money uh, for nothing. But you're looking at annualized returns on equities and bonds across different generations. The baby boomers had it good. Gen Z is (laughs) S.O.L. To say the very least. Well, well, first, the, the bigger picture takeaway from this is just how random so much in life is. The, the year you happen to be born has a really significant impact on how your portfolio t- does over time. I, I remember my parents buying a house in the late 60s, early 70s, and then selling it um, just about 25 years later for about 10x what they paid. 
you're not going to get that sort of return today. And similarly, if you were a working stiff in the 70s and 80s, and you, not that there were 401ks in, in the 70s, but if you were saving and investing in the stock market, you got a huge, huge return, over 7% annualized, versus what we've seen over the past 20 years. You know, the market was essentially flat from 2000 to 2000 and call it 11. Oh, plus back then you got a pension, dude. I mean, my grandfather worked for General Motors after he got out of the Air Force, and he retired with, you know, pay until he was dead. <laughs> right, and, and that, you know, a big part of the impetus behind 401ks, and, and this is sort of unique to the United States, was that we have shifted a lot of what is normally governmental responsibilities onto corporations, um, things like health care and uh, retirement. In most Western democracies, industrialized economies, the government manages that. It's their responsibility. It's not... So I, I run a business. I take care of the health care for my, my employees. We take care of their 401k. That's unusual. The rest of the world doesn't do that. And trying to shift that away from, I think that what you're pointing out is, when we tried to shift that away from corporations, it moved to individuals instead of moving to the government, which has created a giant donut for a lot of people, meaning there's a big hole in about 70% of the retirement uh, expectations out there where people are going to retire with vastly insufficient money. To Although, Barry, uh, you know, go to go back to your chart, I'm looking at, you know, baby boomers and generation golf kids. They all had decent returns on stocks and bonds. Right. But none of us have thought to buy an NFT of Beeple. You know, none <laughs> of us, you know, the Gen Z kids, maybe they were all in Bitcoin 10 years ago. So maybe, but I don't think, you know, what there was a if you if you fast forward a few days in in on the blog uh, on, uh, at uh, ritholtz.com, you'll see the write up I did. Uh, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch did this immense study on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, and one of their main takeaways was that the vast majority of holdings in Bitcoins, something like 2.4 percent of the accounts are responsible for, for a huge chunk of the assets, far more concentrated than what we see in either stocks, bonds, or real estate. So I don't think the the millennials, or, or, or I don't know what they're going to call the generation after them, I don't think they're holding enough Bitcoin to fund their retirements 50 yep. years from now. I was hey, just Barry, thinking you know, I, a new way. Yeah, you know, it's way, interesting, Paul. Barry. My kids are, you know, entering or the workforce, and you know, one of the things I told them is, you know, just max out on your four hundred one k, and it really, really, really makes a difference. But boy, in this low interest rate environment, this low return environment, I'm not sure that's enough anymore. Um, well, first of all, the low interest rate environment. Who knows how much longer that's going to be here? Okay, um, we're already up to one seven. Powell promises, dude, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> Um, well, the Fed, everybody forgets the Fed doesn't determine what bonds are yielding. They only determine the Fed funds rate, which drives the shorter term rates. It, it's the market that determines what the yield um, on the 10 or 30 or, if we're lucky, 50 and 100 year bonds are. So I, I think what we're seeing with these rising rates is optimism about 
uh, the economy on the other side of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily translate automatically into higher stock gains. The correlation between GDP and and stocks is surprisingly low. All that said, a a good economy and expanding tax base, um, innovation and new technology tends to lead to higher living standards and higher stock prices. I will say also, Paul, if you can get your kids a job at Bloomberg, they get an employer match. Yep. So that's they're automatically making 50% returns. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And, uh, you know, but you got to get that savings mentality back out there. And uh, certainly one of the messages I'm trying to convey to my kids here uh, as they enter their workforce, because, boy, this low interest rate environment, it's going to be a tough environment to make money. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. And, of course host of Masters in Business podcast on Bloomberg Radio. We always appreciate getting Barry's thoughts. Matt, I didn't get to talk come- to him about cars at all. No, we did a- We'll do that next time. We'll do that I want to do time. a whole show with Barry about cars. I, I feel could, like... I think yeah. we could probably do that. All right, let's bring in Brian Chapata from our Bloomberg opinion team. He's writing about the Fed's move or, or lack thereof yesterday. I guess a lot of people, Brian, were impressed by Jay Powell's con- uh, press conference. I, I believe it was either Tom or John this morning that said it was the best job he's ever done in a press conference. Do you agree? I mean, I think he was just remarkably consistent and for a good reason. I mean, he's basically just falls back on this framework that the Fed has now every time anyone presses him on anything. He says, look, we have laid out the conditions for what it will take for a rate hike. People keep asking, why won't you hike rates in 2023? He's like, there are reasons why um, you need to have uh, maximum employment. You need to have inflation that has reached 2% and is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. Those are the conditions. If we see those conditions, we will raise interest rates. If we don't, we're not going to. And I just kept repeating that over and over. And and, uh, and I, I tried to get the message across. I don't know if uh, bond traders got it, though. <laughs> yeah, Brian. It's interesting. I'm looking at the uh, the Treasury market right here, the 10-year Treasury down 27.30 seconds, pushing that yield up to 1.74%. Boy, it's been more than a year since we've seen that. And when I see moves in the bond market like that, I want to chat with either Lisa Abramowitz or you. So, Brian, is there a risk here that maybe the market will leave uh, Mr. Powell behind here? I mean, I think right now what the market is, is is suggesting is that we will get inflation. The market's growing confident that there will be inflation and that the Fed will see that inflation and that the Fed will be compelled to, to act. The Fed's not going to do anything. The, the Fed's going to be reactive, um, whereas the bond market is more forward-looking right now. And they're suggesting that we are going to see inflation down the pipe. We are going to see robust growth, and that's going to um, ultimately cause rates to go up. But I think the thing that's missing here is that this is exactly what Jerome Powell and the Fed want to see. They want everybody to be talking about inflation. They want Google searches for inflation to be the highest since 2008, which apparently they are, um, because it's been so long since anybody's been worried about inflation that the Fed was worried that no one was worried about it um, and that that would, that would keep them at the zero lower bound and prevent them from having flexibility to conduct monetary policy. So I think this is all playing into the Fed's hands, and I don't know if bond traders necessarily realize that. Yeah, get out and buy that washing machine now, right? Because (laughs) next month it could be a lot more expensive. Um, 
but the 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 flip side of this is, you know, Brian, we call um, what bond traders or, or investors are doing a tantrum. Really, they're just making money. I, I keep thinking about Bill Gross's short position, and I know he's only the erstwhile bond king. But as these rates march higher, everybody who's into the inverse treasuries ETFs is just making more money. How much longer can they do it? Yeah, I mean, I think right now the positioning is definitely um, for higher rates. Um, it doesn't seem like anybody really wants to step in on any on any major sell-off. You're seeing today, for example, um, when you reach these kind of milestone numbers, it seems like every 25 basis points, um, there's there's buyers that come in. So 1.75 on the 10-year, 2.5% on the 30-year. You saw them pretty quickly retreat from those levels. So there are certain points, but you are seeing many of these gaps um, I was just looking at at how how much ten year yields have moved. For example, I think there's been five moves of eight basis points or more in the past 16 days, and in the entire second half of 2020, there were only four. So you're seeing these big moves uh, in pretty quick uh, quick order. So um, it's hard to step in and buy at that point. So Brian, I'm I'm looking at the DOTS Go function dots uh, on the Bloomberg terminal as I look at Scott Minard like that. Yeah, it's you very cool. Yeah. It's a cool function. It looks neat, and it really shows that we're getting, I guess, a little bit more upward bias for rates higher. I'm looking at, I guess, seven dots uh, above uh, the trend line for 2023. Is it, it, That's a little bit different than we had before. So I guess that suggests that even at the Fed, they're maybe increasingly thinking about higher rates. Yeah, well, I think what was kind of telling in the press conference was Jerome Powell said the strong bulk of the committee still sees rates near zero. So that kind of tipped the hand that, that he and probably Vice Chair Richard Clarida and probably New York Fed uh, President John Williams, kind of the three big ones, uh, probably all still see rates near zero. Um, you probably expect to see some regional Fed presidents that aren't quite buying into this this new framework that, that Richard Clarida and uh, Jerome Powell, Lael Brainerd, I mean, kind of the core of the Fed um, has implemented. So, and I think there was a lot of effort by Jerome Powell to say, can we please keep the median dot at zero um, through 2023? <laughs> For now, we haven't seen actual inflation. You can raise it maybe in June when you start to see some of those big inflation prints due to base effects in the next few months. Uh, as Bill Gross said, for example, you know, 3% or 4%, you could see those on CPI in the next few months just because of how low it was a year ago. Francine this morning was comparing um, Powell to the provincial commander of the, um, you know, regional American army during the Revolutionary War saying, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. <laughs> but but really, um, what Powell's message is, I, I know I'm going to see the whites of their eyes and they're going to run right past me. So the idea is we are going to see inflation and we're not going to shoot, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the idea of average inflation targeting is inflation has been below 2% for so long that we will tolerate a, a modest overshoot is the way I think they phrase it. Um, will they tolerate and, 4%? Uh, probably not. Um, I've heard that they'll tolerate 3%. I think Charles Evans, among others, has said you know 3% would be okay. Uh, there's been talk of 2.5% kind of being maybe a lie in the sand. Um, but I mean, if you look at core PCE, which is one of the things that they put on their summary of economic projections, there was basically no point um, in the entire post-global financial crisis period where for the entire course of a year it averaged 2%. I think 2018 was the only time where it actually met that threshold. So it's a pretty high threshold. And I think that 
markets are getting with the program. And maybe that that merits 10-year yields being above 2% uh, eventually once this inflation starts coming around. But until they see it, the Fed's not going to necessarily freak out about it or overreact. Brian, what do you think uh, is the key metric that the Fed is really focusing on as they think about uh, rates? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of talk about inflation, but people are underestimating just what maximum employment means for the Fed. Um, You know, the Fed is projecting a 3.5% unemployment rate in 2023. That would match the low Mm. of late 2019, early 2020 before COVID. Um, But that might not even be enough to get them to move because they've changed their view to be broad based and inclusive. Um, And so they want to see other metrics. They want to see labor force participation rate come up. Um, they want to see minority employment um, be strong as well. Right. So there are a lot, of, a lot of different metrics that come in here um, that uh, I think people are, are underestimating and that could keep the Fed pinned near zero for a while. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The, the rhetoric was certainly a constant uh, from Fed Chairman Palliasse with his uh, prior uh, dialogue. Brian Chapata, thank you so much for joining us. Brian's a debt markets columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read his work and all of the other fine work from the Bloomberg Opinion columnist at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or by typing O-P-I-N. Go on the Bloomberg terminal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.